Imagine that you're sitting with a friend over a cup of coffee. You're catching up with life, which has not been very easy for your friend these last few years. As you talk, you realize that your friend is jaded about God. Their faith, which was once vibrant, is now in jeopardy. They trust you, and as they share their heart with you, you hear all kinds of emotions, anger, disillusionment, longing. They ask you, where's the abundant life that Christ promised me? They put you on the spot for how it is that you can blindly believe. They complain about how life has not worked out, how it's unfair, how they thought God would do more. They wonder where he is when they pray. As you talk, you feel your own anxiety rise a bit. These are valid questions. You wonder how you should respond. You want to defend God, but there are no easy answers. Whatever you do, you want them to feel heard and you don't want to add to their shame. But if you just agree with them, then that leads them further away from God. Truth has to be upheld even if they can't see it. What should you do? Where is a pastor when you need one? Thankfully, you realize that the Holy Spirit is with you in that conversation. He is tugging on their heart. You are not alone. You can pray with your friend. You can meet them in distress knowing that this is just one point on a long journey. You might hope to meet your friend with just the right passage of scripture. But where is that? Well, believe it or not, you might turn to Hebrews 2. When we read this chapter, it might not be the first place that we think about, but there's gold here for a situation that I just described. Remember, last week we were reminded to pay greater attention to what it is that we have heard, what we know to be true so that we don't drift away from it. We talked about listening to the Lord and allowing him to direct us with his presence. This week, as the author is returning to the theme of angels <clears throat> one more time, we might see how we can pay greater attention to Jesus and how what we read today gives us a more complete picture of who he is. We're often reminded about forgotten accomplishments about people in our lives, things that slip our minds. Oh, I forgot. She used to teach at the jail. That's right. He is a prized gardener. Didn't they also used to play the harmonica? This passage in Hebrews brings us to a place where we might remember a few aspects about Jesus that we have forgotten. And this matters because we don't want to focus only about the parts of the Savior that benefit us or that are especially dear to us. We want to continue to see the profound depth of his character and action in the world so that we understand the spiritual ramifications all around us. And so we can have more to say about the Lord when we're called on to proclaim him or to witness to him when people around us need that. This is quite an involved passage. While we don't want to ignore the complexities or the nuances of the scripture, we also need, need to see where it applies to us today and do this in a short amount of time. Um, because if we don't, then we can just pass it off as irrelevant. We might miss the richness of the Savior that we're called to know and 
um, what it is that we also might turn to when we're struggling or when we're lost. So let's dive in. We're going to uh, break this passage down into a few chunks at a time to make it more manageable. And so I will read them and then talk about each piece. So today we're in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, which is to the end of the chapter. And our first chunk is going to be 5 through 9. Now, God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned in glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Some commentators think that this section picks up where the end of chapter one left off, that the four verses we read last week are merely a parenthetical aside. However, as I mentioned, those four verses exhort us to keep our focus, to continue to train our minds in God's truth and presence. This is not an easy feat for any generation or for most people. So what is it that we learn about Christ in these verses today that are useful for us to remember to continue to pay attention to? Well, the writer goes back to talking about angels, using the status of angels, where they sit in God's created order, give us perspective about the Lord and also about ourselves. The world was not created for or by the angels. That privilege belongs to the Lord, to the creator, and to humans, the recipients of his creation. Let's notice that these verses um, in them, we see a past, a present, and a future. That language is going on all together. In verse 5, it talks about the coming world. It also speaks of the world that was created in the beginning and how Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor on the throne. So one thing we might remember, one thing that has important implication for us, is that all of us can get stuck in this temporary world but that God operates outside of time. He creates the time in which we live, but everything is known to him all at once. While we exist in the kingdom that is both heavenly and earthly, that has been established by Jesus, but is yet to be fully realized, we might take comfort in the enormity of God's life revealed on such a large frame, a larger frame than we can ever truly grasp. The creator who holds all things together holds us in his hands. The scripture quoted here comes from two Psalms, Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. You would recognize Psalm 8, O God, my God, how majestic is your name over all of the earth. This psalm is expounding on the vast beauty of the heavens and the earth that God has established. 
In its original context, King David is marveling at how God can care about all of these things, the vastness, but also care for human beings. This is also good for us to remember. Who are we, O Sovereign Lord, that you would care about us, that you are mindful of all of the places that we live in? David is saying how God makes us and gives us dominion over the creatures. He who dwells in glorious splendor offers us the opportunity to rule with him. Psalm 110 is also from David. We mentioned that a few weeks ago as being a messianic psalm, one of um, the most quoted in the New Testament. Here we're reminded of how we are stewards of God and his created world, how we have treated the earth, animals, the air, the ocean. All of those things are going to be called to account one day before God. In the garden, God gives humans great autonomy. And sometimes we have taken that control to mean we can do what we want. Or that our needs always come first because we're human and we're in control. We don't worship the creation. Yet we must always continue to protect and sustain it as God has given us charge to do in his absence. The writer of Hebrews takes these old passages and shifts their perspective. In the Psalms, the focus is on humans, but now the writer has shifted the focus to Jesus. For a while, Jesus was human, is what the writer is saying. The, the Savior was lower than the angels. Now he is crowned with glory and honor and everything. Everything is under the sun's control, and one day this will fully be experienced and known by everyone. This is a really astounding reminder of how Jesus has full authority over the entire universe. And yet, for a little while, a few years, he was subject to its creation. For a few years, he put himself in the place of being utterly dependent on broken human beings, trusting himself to their care. Jesus closed any separation there was between heaven and earth by becoming one with us in a way that we can understand. This is the basis for much of the hope that we have. A God who truly is with us, who truly is one of us who's coming alongside, changed how we know him, who showed us there's nothing outside of our own stubbornness, our own rebelliousness or sin. Nothing stands in the way of us knowing him. I'm so struck by the end of verse 9. Jesus is crowned with glory because he suffered in death. This is why he is honored because we don't pay the penalty for all of our offenses. He pays the penalty. Because of his grace, Jesus tasted death for all of us. What a phrase. Jesus tastes death for us. And I think about how there is mystery here. There's so much about God that we have trouble grasping. We don't really understand the Trinity. We can't explain 
how Jesus was born as a baby, how he's fully God and fully human. And we don't know how it's possible that he died for all of us, but it's personal. It's for you and for me and for the millions upon millions who have ever lived. Death is a very primal experience. We feel it with all of our senses. Here the writer says that Jesus tasted our death. What was that like? How is that even possible? Jesus didn't just feel the piercing of the nails or the intense pressure or the flogging, the wounds. He tasted. He tasted the decay. He tasted the blood. He tasted his life just ebbing out of him. Jesus enters into every part of our world, enabling us to have his presence in what is most painful for us. This is something for us to explore when we're struggling or with friends who are struggling. Jesus laments over our pain. He understands what it is to live in a fallen world. He feels the little hurts and the big griefs that we carry and in all of it and all of it he wants to bring grace to cover our disappointments and our pain his design was for a new life to flow from him all of the time new life not that we would get stuck in the thinking and the patterns and the systems around us while very real those things are also very temporary where can we find the grace of Jesus in a life that's disillusioned? The second check, uh, chunk brings us to uh, 10 through 13. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in you. And again, here I and the children whom God has given me. There are two ideas that jump out here. First is that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. Notice also again here that salvation is made perfect through suffering. Dying is the way to new life. Jesus suffers for us and with us and among us. And the suffering is made complete in order to bring us to his side. Who is the one who blazes the trail for us? Jesus. The word pioneer here seems straightforward, but it's a little more complex. At its simplest, it means head or chief. At its extreme, it means champion or hero. We would know it to mean one who goes beyond anything that we thought was possible to new places where there's no actual road and that person forges the way for others to follow behind them. Because reconciliation was something everyone longed for and needed and no one could get there on their own merit or strength. Jesus, 
comes to the rescue. He does this in a way that no one else could by facing down death, one of our greatest fears. The other idea that we might notice here is that Jesus is our brother. He is not ashamed to become one of us and call us his sibling. And he welcomes us into the family by becoming one of us. In a family, there's a high commitment to one another. This idea would have really resonated with um, his audience in the first century. Here, there's a place of belonging. Jesus is in solidarity with his people no matter what. And even though we are so much less than him, we should always trust that we have a place alongside of him wherever he is. I often tell young people who are oldest in their families that they can never underestimate how important they are to their younger brothers and sisters. Because growing up, those who are younger just want to be part of what's going on. They look up to their older siblings, hoping that they can go along too, hoping that whatever their older siblings are doing, they can join in the fun. As the last of five, I tagged along to a lot of parties and sports events and church retreats and even a few dates. And sometimes I could tell it was just an obligation and my sibling was pretty embarrassed that I was there. But other times, my sibling was super happy that I was there and I joined in the fun. Isn't that what we all need? Isn't that what we all want? To be completely welcomed by someone who loves us? Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, even though he is so far above us in every way possible. And because we have all done things that would make others not want to be seen with us, not want to associate with us. But the Lord says, it's okay. I want you with me. I love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to cover your embarrassment and your shame and your mistakes and your wounds with my very life. We are brothers and sisters to Jesus. That is a radical thought. Let's read 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. 18, sorry, we're going to 18. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. This section continues the idea that Jesus has come to share in our humanity. And the author is summing up this whole section by saying that Jesus destroys the power of death and how he destroys the power of death is by dying. The word destroy here means to render inoperative, to render ineffective. On the cross, the devil was defeated and the bonds that held all of humanity captive were broken. Dr. George Guthrie, who's a foremost expert on Hebrew, says, Here 
The writer is teaching us about the logic of the incarnation. He says, death was the prescription for victory, the antidote. It's what we all needed. And the only way that the Son of God could accomplish the needed task was to die. And the only way that the Savior could die was by becoming human, thus the incarnation. Brilliant. There are ideas here that we're going to explore later about Jesus as our high priest. This is a huge theme in Hebrews. We're going to talk about it later on. Jesus is uniquely qualified to intercede on behalf of a humanity with God. This fact has deep roots in the history of Israel where the idea of atonement is started. For now, I want us uh, to I want to encourage us to reflect on the truth that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Oh, let's hear that again. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is merciful, meeting us in our ugliness and our rebellion, loving us where we are. But Jesus is also faithful. He is holy. He is faithful to his perfection and to the truth of God. He has to be both, and he calls us to be the same. Verse 18 is our last thought here. Jesus didn't give in when he was tested by great suffering. He endured the pain and humiliation, and he did not quit. There's no complaining. There's no whining about how hard it was. He stared death down, and he persevered so that we might find strength in our trials, in the suffering and the testing that we have, that we know that we can stare it in the face because we have a Savior who has been victorious over sin and death. And ultimately, ultimately, we also are victorious no matter what. The cross enables Jesus to enter into our struggles with us. He feels these pains, the suffering alongside us, inside of us, even when no one else can understand. No one else completely gets it. Jesus can. He is able to help us when we are tested. The Greek word here for help is interesting. It literally means to run to the cry of someone in distress. Isn't that something to share with our discouraged friends? Jesus runs to our cries. He hears our cries. He hears when we are moaning and in so much distress. And he holds us close if we're willing to be held close. And he comforts us in all it is that we're feeling. All of us have friends in our lives who have come close to giving up the Christian faith. In those moments, we might be really unsure about what to say. In those times, we might recall where the writer of the Hebrews found themselves. This whole letter is a response to a discouraged group of people who are feeling the pressure to conform back 
to previous ways of coping, to former ways of being. And the writer says, don't do it. Look at Jesus. What I appreciate about this passage is that it offers something for all of us. If you are in need of hope for the future, remember that there's a world coming where we are going to meet God face to face. If you're looking for a place to belong, Jesus says you are always part of his family. If you are being held in bondage to slavery or fear of death, Jesus has faced that enemy and is ready to free you. And if you are being tested beyond what you think you can bear, Jesus will come running to help you. These are not new ideas, but these are reminders about our Lord that we need to pay greater attention to. These truths are held deep in our souls where God placed them before the beginning of the world. And so may this word from Hebrews resonate with us and may we be shown what to do with it. May we call on our God in time of trouble, both for ourselves and for others. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.